Welcome to another podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nisha Chalam. This is just Women Wide for Wellness. So today we're going to have a discussion about a very interesting topic. This is a topic around women's health. Here's why this is going to be interesting. I'm going to be talking to Dr. Marilyn Glenville, who's not a medical doctor, but is a PhD, a registered nutritionist, a psychologist, and an author of 13 books. She's an international speaker. She's a broadcaster. She shows up on TV, radio. I mean, she is amazing. I remember having come across one of her webinars, completely, totally mesmerized by the information she gave on a very difficult topic that when I say difficult topic, difficult topic for most women, which is osteoporosis. What I found interesting about her career path and what she does is she focuses on the natural healing, the nutritional healing of many of the annoying chronic problems that women face, right from menstrual irregularities, menstrual pain, PCOS, fibroids, endometriosis, infertility, and then later on in life, the menopause and osteoporosis. She actually can work with an individual and with couples to help women understand and naturally manage these diseases. Who doesn't want that? No one wants to be popping a whole bunch of pills which have side effects. So that's why I'm so excited because the nutritional aspect of women's health is I don't think discussed enough because I still find patients coming and talking to me and saying, you know, I have endometriosis but it runs in my family or I have fibroids, it runs in my family. And I So this can have some far-reaching effects and completely alter the trajectory of your life. So it's important to understand if you can resolve this naturally, why not? And if there's an expert who has dedicated her whole life to understanding these processes and helping people, she's on my podcast. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Marilyn Glendale. Welcome, Dr. Glenville. I am really excited to talk to you. I see you got um, uh, your PhD Cambridge. Yes. Yeah. And and it's like one of the oldest universities, right? And it, uh, is. it is. Yeah. Which is the oldest one? I thought this was the second oldest. Yeah, I think probably Oxford is Oxford. Oxford. Yeah, Oxford. the two are okay. hand in hand in terms of our top universities. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So you graduated from Cambridge. You did a lot of things with as um, uh, they call it, call you a registered nutritionist. Is that yeah? Yeah. Is that the same as a registered dietitian here? No, it's different. No. Um, yes, it's a different uh, pathway. So nutrition and dietitian would be different pathways. So okay. I always, yeah. There, there. So let's get into a little into your own journey to what you do, because you do a lot of work, particularly with helping women heal naturally. And we'll get into what that means. And a lot of it is with food, which is what most people are seeking, but somehow it doesn't land. It does, it's not something that, because if everybody listened to people like you and me, there would be no illness. Yes. <laughs> right. But yes. obviously there, there's something we're not able to break through in that. So tell me your journey and then we'll delve a little deeper into all the work that you do. Well, I did the PhD in Cambridge and it was a mix of both psychology and physiology. It was on biological sciences and it was I got very interested in premenstrual syndrome. That was my first sort of foray into women's health and mm. realized that actually women would be given antidepressants that was the drug of choice to deal with something that was coming in a cycle that maybe they only had seven to ten days a month and yet were on antidepressants all the time and that made me think about the biology that was going on and then this understanding of we could change the underlying physiology by changing their pattern of eating and that really was a light bulb moment particularly also for me because I'd suffered also with migraines for many years mm -hmm. and never connected that what I was eating could actually be causing those headaches. So it was that personal side of it as well as the woman's side. And then from that premenstrual syndrome introduction, it's gone into the whole area of women's health now. And that's what I've been 
working on for the last 30 years with a, a clinic in Harley Street and also outside of London as well. But it's been a joy to be able to help women through whatever stage they are in their life. So let me ask you this. If somebody is listening to us for the first time and not understanding what premenstrual syndrome is, which I phantom no one does because everybody complains about, oh, she must be PMSing. So that's that's usually the statement. So what is a premenstrual syndrome? What would you define it as? Well, it used to be called premenstrual tension because it was more about that tension and anxiety. And then it was understood that there could be a 150 different symptoms that women could experience in this seven to 10 days before the period. And so it could be water retention. So there may be breast tenderness, there may be bloating. Yes, there may be mood changes as well, but also food cravings. So they expanded it out into premenstrual syndrome that included a, a cluster of different symptoms. And what's been interesting is that because medically doctors will always go by symptoms, it can't be looked at like that. It has to be looked at as timing because the symptoms are so varied with up to 150 and they can vary from month to month so it's actually this is one of those situations where it's done on the timing of the symptom and not necessarily the symptoms themselves yeah so th there's a physical component there's an emotional component to it and um, a lot of it is the discomfort a woman experiences so let me ask you this um, is it not normal is that an abnormal condition? I think where it's not normal is where the women explaining to me that they feel like Jekyll and Hyde. They do feel a completely different personality shift. It affects their relationships, not only with their partner, but all their children. So it can be very extreme. There is even an extreme version, which is a premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is actually in the psychiatric manual. So it can be classed as a psychiatric disease when it gets so extreme. And of course, yes, we are in a cycle as we go through that period and the menstrual part, but this is something where the women feel it's affecting their quality of life physically and emotionally. People come to you with this. This has been my experience. When they come to me with this particular complaint, they talk to me about how um, it runs in their family. Everybody in their family experiences this, right? So how do you actually help them understand what runs in the family probably are the habits? And this might be something, um, th there's some truth to it running in the family, like you said. There, there may be some genetic snips that actually put you at a high risk for migraine headaches. But in general, how do you uh, initiate this conversation with a woman so that she understands that premenstrual symptom is something that she can actually control? Yes, and you're right, because it, it could run in the family in terms that there may be a genetic component, but also it's patterns of eating, it's things that have been passed down, how the family eat together, habits that they may have taken on board. So it is about giving the woman the understanding that this is something she can take control of, that there is, she's not powerless, that something can be done about this. And actually, she could change her quality of life by making certain changes. And I think that's when the trust comes in, that she is able to make that step and say, OK, yes, I think this could happen. And I'm willing to take those steps and, and take that advice on board. And that's that's a really big step, I think, for some women to take that they can they can make these changes and it can change their life if they're able to do it. Yeah. So a lot of times when they do come to you in terms of with, whether it would be premenstrual symptoms, what would you say is the success rate in them following through with all of these changes? I have to say with PMS, it's the most successful one I treat. I have to say out of everything because it's so amenable to dietary change and it's very quick as well so it's one of those that it's a delight to be able to say to the woman yes this will work very effectively this is what you need to do and for her to take that on board and then for her to come back and say actually this has transformed my life and thank you and that's really powerful because it is very quick to change 
So that's been a delight over the years to be able to make that difference in those women's lives. What I see is patients either uh, move towards pleasure or move away from pain. So I think PMS is one of those things. The pain is so yeah. significant. They're willing to do make those changes. Uh, because the greater distress that I see as a physician is I can see them. Um, this is when I was practicing traditional medicine. I can see them declining oh. and they literally every everything else is on their plate, right? Their work, their kids, um, their parents, and they don't have them on the list. So they live all their life carrying these almost annoyance, right? Heavy menstrual cycle, having to take Motrin or because the periods are coming, having the pain in their breasts, feeling like they're swelling tight, having some insomnia, having little anxiety, depression, but they continue to function mm. doing all of their work. And then eventually... As I see them, because I've seen them as both in my outpatient clinic and the hospital and in the nursing homes, I see that the last few decades, they're just walking around waiting for death to happen. It's just, just a very tragic lifespan. It's almost like a journey to death. What, why is that? What, what, is, what are we missing in, when it comes to healthcare for women? I think oftentimes they're putting themselves quite a way down the list. And like you said, they're looking after children, they may be looking after elderly parents, they've got partners, and for them they're putting up with these symptoms and can push themselves through daily life because it's not, most of it is not a, a definite illness in the sense, but it's this shopping list of symptoms that grow over time and they're putting up with it. And the amazing thing is, it's not until the women have made those changes that they've actually realized what they were suffering through when those symptoms was there. And it yeah. wasn't until they'd gone and then it was, my goodness, it was like this light bulb moment of what actually they were carrying and putting up with on a day-to-day -day basis because they could live through it. And that, yeah. and how do you explain to somebody what this difference will be? It's not until they experience that change do they see what they were living through and putting up with for year after year. You know, that that is probably the most astute observation because they have a lot of annoyances that are not necessarily illnesses, right? right? Because their blood test comes back normal. Yeah. And I, I, I feel a lot of it is they go to their doctors hoping like, oh my God, they're going to find my thyroid is all whacked out. My hormones are all whacked out. And the doctors, everything looks good. Yeah. And, you know, and you come back and it's like, it's, it's just me. It's just me. And because it's me, it's difficult to change. I just don't have the time to change. Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, like for, for you, what do you see as the, other than the fact that they take care of everybody else? What do you think is the greatest barrier when you tell you've spoken to so many women and you've written like 13 books. So I know you have seen a pattern. What do you think is the bigger barrier? So somebody listening to this can say, you know what, I do have that barrier and I need to um, overcome that. Yes. And I think it's, it's having the trust that it's going to be worth the effort to make those changes. Because obviously medically, if somebody has high cholesterol, you could prescribe them a statin and they could carry on eating the chocolate cakes and everything else <laughs> that they wanted to. But we're asking women to fundamentally take responsibility for their health. I'm, give, I'm sharing the advice, I'm sharing the experience, and I know what the potential is by them making those steps. But it's, it's them actually saying, okay, I understand that, I can do that. But it is them making that effort, and it is, I understand it is an effort at the beginning because they're just trying to keep themselves together on a daily basis and function and look after everybody else. And it requires adding something else to their life at that moment to think they're going to make some changes. And it's that step of how they do that. And sometimes I think sometimes some women will need smaller step, a smaller shorter term goal rather than saying, well, this is everything that you do and it will be wonderful. And some will take that on board and others are going to need smaller changes 
to be able to feel confident that it's making a difference and that they can cope with that change. And yes, I'm feeling better. I can cope with the next change. And it's how you put those layers on, depending on somebody's personality and their life pressures and everything else that they're juggling in, in everyday life. That, that is actually a point that I have noticed too. So in fact, recently I put a, um, a poll on my little community. I said, people are chronically ill because number one, they do not know there is another way or they do not want to change or they do not have a diagnosis. I gave them three choices. And really the most votes were for they do not want to change. So it's on, it's, it, it, that was surprising to me. Uh, some of them did. I mean, the next neck to neck with, um, they do not know that there is another option. Yes. But if they're in my group, they do know <laughs> there's another option. But a good number of them did say they do not want, want to change. So, um, and this reminds me also of a phone call I received from a lady who had gone on a cruise ship. And she's been struggling with Hashimoto's. She had been struggling for quite some time. And then coming off the cruise ship, she slipped, fell, and fractured her legs. Um, so obviously, I, I'm going to assume if you just fell off the steps, uh, you probably have some osteoporosis. And she called me saying, I'm really so tired of being so tired. And I explained to her, yes, you know, I understand like what you said. You know, there are other things that you can do to get better. It's a little bit of a process. We, you know, we peel it like layer by layer. She thought about it and she said, you know what? I want to hang around with my friends. I want to drink and I want to eat. I really don't think I can do much to change. So in, in many ways, I blame myself for it because the way I explained to her all these amazing things she's going to get to do to feel amazing at the end of it. This was very early, very early in my uh, practice as a functional medical physician. I, I thought I was giving her all the things that I would, I would be excited to work with her. And I think she got overwhelmed. They seem to be choosing belonging to a community rather yeah. than change and feel alienated. Do you see that as yeah. a big barrier? Yes, I do. And it's only when I think that they feel that they can't continue with the symptoms that they're feeling, like you said, that pain, that if that pain of what they're experiencing, and if it restricts their life, then they may be willing to make that change, but they will be operating differently from a lot of their friends. And that's how do they cope with that. But I think it gets to the point where they've had enough they're fed up with feeling like that, tired of feeling tired. And then what do I do about it? Because I'm ready. They've got to be ready yeah. to take that step. That's got to be, it's like somebody comes in, you say, and you know, um, the smoking situation, somebody has to be ready to stop smoking. Nobody can bring them in and say, well, my friend needs to stop smoking. It's not going to work. It has to be that that's the right moment for them. And then everything fits into place. That, that's so true yeah. because it's it's just it has to come from within you so let me ask you this a couple of things as i want to go to the next i'm going to take the lifespan of a woman so because you have you're a wealth of knowledge there but just to talk about the very first thing that you did mention the pms what are the some of the changes that you know for sure will work no matter what maybe they are unwilling to change what is the one thing that they can do that can help their PMS? And I have to say, this also goes across most of the ages with most of the hormonal conditions. And that is sorting out blood glucose and blood, blood sugar, whichever we want to call it. That, for me, is the crux of what, for most women, is going on. And if they're going to take one step, and that's when I say sometimes, you know, just do this one thing because it could be overwhelming to do all the things I'm suggesting – it, that can make such a difference in such a short space of time. And it is the key to what's going on with PMS. And it really does make a difference to get that blood sugar under control because many of them are living on a roller coaster of ups and downs of mood, of ups and downs of blood sugar, of ups and downs of energy. It's how their whole day is operating. And that has such an impact 
on the female hormone system. So that would always be my first step for them to do and say, do this one thing if you can't do anything else and then see how it goes. Oh my God, I just love this because I always tell people, if you gave me just one hormone to address in a woman, that would be insulin. Yeah, And it's because the ups and down, up and down of the insulin, it really drives our whole system uh, bonkers, especially yeah. with the progesterone, insulin, your thyroid. I mean, it's like the cortisol, everything gets disrupted with just this fluctuations of blood sugar. And then you have polycystic ovary syndrome and insulin. It's the whole gamut of everything that we go through as women. And that one step, if they can say, okay, I can do that, tremendous. Yeah. So do you use a continuous glucose monitor? No, I don't. Um, I would get them to follow all the dietary recommendations and then usually their doctor is taking care of them on that respect if they need it. But we're normally doing it just with the dietary side and it, and it does work very well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it does. So let's start with the lifespan of a woman. I'm noticing younger and younger women having more physical problems, right? I'm getting young, like 18 to 24, 25, calling me and talking to me about their skin condition, about their gut about their irregular menstrual cycle, and they all get put on oral contraceptive pills, right? Because there's so much of pain during periods. It's almost like they're anemic. And um, in fact, I have a gal who was, I think she was in her late teens when they did a hysterectomy. To me, it was just, I was just aghast. That's how bad her endometriosis was, and she needed yeah. to get that removed. So I find this whole uh, spectrum, whether it be painful menstruation, frequency or irregularity, fibroids, endometriosis, all of them are in the same spectrum. Like you said, it's the fluctuations of um, the blood sugars. But tell me a little more about how, in young women, why are, you, are we seeing such increasing rates of menstrual abnormalities almost as granted everybody who gets a uh, attains menarche is going to have some kind of an irregularity is going to get put on oral contraceptive pills what do you believe is driving that change and how do you approach it i think it is a combination it's a combination of lifestyle and like you said the stress that these young women may be after uh, under because they're also on a career path at this time and really you know want to achieve things and i can understand that and that's wonderful but it is a lot of pressure they're putting themselves under and longer days as well and also how old, whole issue around food and how processed it's become. We've lost that, you know, they haven't got time for home cooking. So it is a really accumulation, I think, of lifestyle factors, lack of exercise, everything that's going on that really is impinging on them at such a, an early age. Plus, we've got the endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment, in our toiletries, pesticides, it is something different from a couple of generations ago that wasn't there in that exposure for those women at, the, at that age. So tell me a little more about the endocrine disruptors. And I remember uh, looking on your website about tampons, which I think every young woman uh, uses. I, I mean, I came from India and um, I would just look at that little thing in the bath, uh, you know, the bathrooms where they have like put a coin and get a tampon and like, why would you do that? But I, it was very interesting. And then we uh, uh, do this toxic um, uh, insight. Yeah. Tox yeah, toxic shock syndrome. So I'm thinking, why are they doing that? And what would be your advice to women who just stop their periods? Because I think the young girls just go for tampons. I don't think they even know what a pad looks like. Well, I would say go for a pad where possible in our everyday life and go for cotton it's the consideration whether there could be chemicals either in the pad or in the tampon and things like dioxins which are in the paper producing industry and they can have a, a carcinogenic effect so i would always go for cotton but of course women are going to go on holiday they're swimming you know they may be in a swimming club and that's when the tampons are really useful but still to go for 
organic cotton and go for that best quality. I do think a tampon, of course, is useful lifestyle wise, but it is acting as a dam and stopping that blood flow, which is supposed to be flowing at that time of the month. And of course, if it's left in there and the woman has forgotten about it, then there is, as you mentioned, that toxic shock syndrome, which could actually be fatal. But I think it's about us choosing whatever products we're using, whether it's sanitary products, whether it's cosmetics, uh, moisturizers, is to think about what we're putting on our skin and in our body as much as we should be doing with our food and going for things as close to nature as possible. Because even in our skin, it's very porous. That's how nicotine patches, HRT patches work. So we have to think about what we're rubbing on our skin, around our breasts, our reproductive organs. It's going to be just as important as, as what we're choosing to eat, I think. Yeah, that's so true because I think um, I think everybody must have seen that little meme where a woman is walking out and they say 156 chemicals she walks out of the house with, right? Looking absolutely stunning, but that's what it takes to look stunning. Well, right from yeah. head to toe. Um, and that's what is disrupting our um, hormones. In fact, um, I think there's a study that showed in the uh, Canadian, one of the lakes, when they get the fish, the, the pirate is completely ruptured. And they think it's the chemicals from the industry uh, that disrupts the pyroid physically. And I, these are the fish we're eating. And the potential for us to have problems too is there. It's taking forever for the endocrine society to admit, uh, but they did finally. Yeah. They said, yes, these chemicals are acting as endocrine disruptors. Because so, we've also got in our rivers in the UK, yeah. we've got in our, and the environmental agency has told us we've got a third of our river of, of our fish, the male fish, becoming feminized because these chemicals from not only the pesticide but also the plastic industry are going into the water supply so that's the concern is that yes they're going to have an effect on us as women and 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 conditions which are driven by estrogen like fibroids endometriosis certain breast cancers but also having an effect on men and their fertility and sperm counts and everything over time so it's going to affect men and women across the board just in different ways so can you actually handle i mean just changing the diet and exercise when you have all these chemicals on board is that something that you see feasible i do see it as feasible and i and i do understand that we are always going to be up against things that we can't control and there's things in that environment we can make better choices in what we're using on our body in terms of cosmetics toiletries plastic bottles with bisphenol A, that sort of thing. Yes, there will be things out of our control and there is understanding we may have to accept that, but it's about what we do personally. And even though we are limited to complete control over it, it's still going to make a difference to our health. And that's the really important thing. So really, I can use an excuse if I can lose weight, that it's all the chemicals I'm exposed to. Yes. It's just not a. Yeah. It's not a uh, excuse that you will take. Or I've, or I've got big bones. <laughs> yeah, of course. But everybody in my family is big, so. But you know, I, I, as much as we make fun of it, I think patients realize that too a lot. Um, that they are saying all these things, but they don't believe in it themselves. They tell me that later. You know, I, I remember I used to think this way, and you changed all that for me. So. Um, I'm so glad that, um, you know, we can actually, I, I find that people are getting more and more um, well-informed and educated and realize that they can make a difference. And so many of these things, you're not helpless. Yes, you may not change everything. You'd like one of my other colleagues said, it's like walking, um, uh, walking through the world like a big barrel a dumpster that is accumulating all of the stuff and it's for us to sort that out the body just has to sort that out and we have to help the body to sort it out efficiently so that it can continue to function so i know there's a lot of um a lot of things coming down the pipeline i'm i'm very excited about peptides which i'm going to be talking to my group of patients because i think that will be a game changer for many folks but let's talk about um so young women they have to learn to handle their stress they have to learn to 
move away from processed foods, be aware of all the chemicals that they put on themselves and put inside them like the tampons. But let's say they are making all those changes. How much does alcohol play a role in all of this? Yes, a big role. And I think that's a change from generations ago where young girls wouldn't have been drinking the amount they're drinking. And I have some, seen some women in the clinic, but actually it's the whole weekend they're drinking and they're taking the whole of Monday to recover. And it's a huge, it's a huge amount of alcohol. So it's, it's the, I think the binge drinking as well that's changed over time. So it's something that is, and it's going to affect women you know for the rest of their life as well but it's that impact on the liver and it's trying to explain to them that they can't handle it as well as men you know the their metabolism alcohol is going to be different and it impacts their hormones and it's just to try to moderate it and some of them it's very much the social side it's after work you know they're all going to bars so it's how do you change that but fit it into your lifestyle so that you still feel socially included like you said that you're not alienated from your group that you can still participate in everything but you're still trying to nourish yourself and and take care of your health at the same time but the same women once they get pregnant they're able to quit their alcohol somehow it, it just becomes socially acceptable to drink when you're pregnant um but it's okay but i think the quality of the egg gets affected prior to you getting pregnant and yeah. It's it does. And, and women, you know, if they're if they're waiting later, which they are generally now in our generation to get pregnant, maybe they've, you know, not met the right person. They're yep. on that career ladder, which is lovely. But their biological clock is still the same as it was a generation ago. And of course, we're aiming to try and help them stay fertile for as long as possible. But the alcohol is going to knock that down. So would smoking. So that's the problem. It doesn't give them as many years possible in order to get pregnant, but they're waiting longer. So you've got a combination of factors that can make it harder to get pregnant for that woman when she wants to. I know we probably are going to be talking about it like a broken bucket, but I want to talk about the next phase. So here's a young woman who's she's figured out like her PMS, she can handle it. The periods she's trying to figure out then comes the fertility issue right and many of them i find struggle and that's the second time uh, first time they get offered hormones as a solution to their menstrual problems and then again they're offered a different set of hormones as a solution to their infertility uh, what do you see as the most common um reason that they um are infertile because I've seen actually women come to me who are very thin, who are very active, do yoga, eat healthy. They, they, they call it, I eat clean yes. and, and yet have infertility issues or difficulty getting pregnant. What have you seen as the bigger challenge that, you know, yeah. that seems to be plaguing them? And, it, and it's interesting because they now talk about disordered eating, that those women don't actually have an eating disorder, but they've taken that clean eating to the extreme. And it is that weight loss and that physical activity where it is too extreme and they've lost a huge percentage of body weight. They haven't got a cycle. Even if they were not even a gymnast or an athlete, some women are going to that extreme. And of course, then they haven't got a cycle at all. They're put on the contraceptive pill. And like you said, they're going from that contraceptive pill to hormones to try and induce ovulation. And it's how do we help them to say that actually we need to do something now to protect your fertility for the future. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult or you'll end up down the IVF route, which many women are going that route nowadays. So one extreme is where you're not taking care of your health and the other extreme is where taking too much care of your health. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh my God, you got to find a, yeah. know, a happy medium, which is actually very difficult um, given all the information. So how do you advise women to sort through all of this information? Because I, I find most people are looking for a simple solution. And when I mean a simple solution, uh, so they 
um, you know, they start exercising, right? Everybody gives us a tip. I'm so disgusted. I, I saw my, my pictures in the group and I don't want to look like that anymore. They're, they have this plan. They go into the gym. They start exercising. They've changed their diet. They've removed all carbs, which is the, which can be a whole separate podcast on its own. But they're eating all this meat and vegetables and drinking water, doing everything. And then they step on the scale and nothing really happens, right? And this is where they get disappointed and they kind of, all of their old habits come back. It's just, a, I just can't lose weight. So what is the advice that you give to women who do this uh, start, stop, start, stop cycle and keep looking for information but are never successful? Yes, and, and, and obviously there's been a lot of research, especially on things like the yo-yo dieting, which actually then affects their thyroid, their whole metabolism. It, it actually is putting them back in time by going from one fad diet onto another. And for me, it's about thinking to try and explain to them that what we are after is a way of eating that becomes a way of life, that it's not something that you're going to do now as a diet and then you're going to stop and it's going to be something different that we're aiming to have a way of eating that we eat like this for the rest of our life except there will be changes if you're going on holiday or a birthday party or something like that and your body will cope with it but ultimately it's thinking of this as not a diet but this way of eating that transforms our health and we can continue like this into the future and I always have this 80 20 rule that 80 percent of the time I'd like them to eat healthy there will be the 20 percent blips and their body will absolutely cope with it and that's the social side and everything else but it is thinking about this in a different way rather than a fad diet and then another fad diet or a, a different exercise regime it's how do we get this moderation in there this homeostasis for the body to actually rectify itself and change the underlying physiology which is what i'm really after to give them a long-term solution yeah and i think that's a very important point people will say uh things like stick smoking as the as an example because it's an easy one it's well studied everybody yeah. understands it when somebody's smoking a cigarette they don't get lung cancer but when they smoke cigarettes over 35 years the potential for lung cancer is very high and they're not surprised at that time. You know, it's not like, but somehow when we make these changes to our lifestyle, we're um, suddenly eating a couple of salads, you're going to ex exercise, you're not seeing the needle move on your weighing machine. You kind of give up. It's like, I always tell this to patients where you've taken 10, 15 or 20 years to earn this condition. You most likely need to take a year or two to unearn it and have a completely different path. Not that you're not going to lose any weight for two years, but keep doing this again and again and again. Once you developed a good habit, make it like, I'm not going to do it the old way ever again. And I, yeah. I don't think people get to that point before they give up. That's what yeah. I notice, right? And it's that's like the, the habits. Bit. If we had a cause and effect that was very quick, and they could see that difference from what they've eaten. Like if they took a cigarette and a month later, you know, they've got lung cancer. But it is this time frame. And even with things like Alzheimer's, because I've written a book on Alzheimer's, which is our biggest killer as women, it's starting 20 to 30 years before that diagnosis. And it's understanding of this time frame. And that's the difficulty because it's not so easy to see, well, I've eaten this. And I feel like this, or it's caused that. It's such a, a long time frame between the, the the cause and the effect that that's harder to get across. But it's absolutely right, and it's what happens over time that's been caused by something, you know, a couple of decades before. So let's get to the next part. So now they're pregnant, and during pregnancy, um, I mean, there can be issues like blood pressure and sugar issues gestational diabetes is i i would say the pregnancy form of type 2 diabetes though it's temporary but you know um it's a good forerunner of how your health is going to be 20 years down the line but 
coming off of pregnancy, you'll when I look at patients, most patients get to me by the time they're in their late 40s or early 50s. But when you ask them the question that you ask, when was the last time you ever felt well? They'll say, you know, after the birth of my son or my daughter. And I ask, so how old is your son or daughter? It's like 25. So they've gone, they've gone for 25 years with the, this problem. So what is the problem that women experience? What does pregnancy do to women? And um, I have my own, um, you know, from what I see from studies, but what have you noticed and um, how, why do women take that much time to say, you know what, I, maybe I should get some help for this? Yeah, and I think it is is that depletion of nutrients because obviously the baby takes first call on everything. It's the mother that gets left over with whatever's left over. But I think it's also that as when that baby's born, then the mother is really not thinking about herself in the same way, that that priority is the baby, the health of the baby, the toddler, you know, the little boy or girl as they're growing up. And that, again, is her down that list of priorities and everything else. She's putting up with those symptoms because her focus is on the child, which is wonderful, but it puts herself on the back burner and she's putting up with everything for so many years until the point that she comes to us, you know, 25 years down the line and is actually fed up with feeling like that, which is a shame that we are seeing her so late on, but it's where her focus is over that time in terms of the family and, and looking after everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I come from a culture where, uh, especially for the first pregnancy, and especially if the woman was pregnant with a boy, they would really take care. I mean, she's like the princess, right? Wow. There's massage, no work. Um, you give in your own you go to bed on time, you're given great nutrition. So when I came here, um, what I noticed is as women, it's pregnancy, it's like, oh, you want to get pregnant, but soon after pregnancy, you want to get back to work. Because yeah. you're, you know, our biological clock is at the same time as a career clock. And so there's so much of clash. Yeah. And I think it really disrupts us. Um, that's number one. The other thing, what I've noticed is with each pregnancy, I think going into pregnancy, it, it, you're just one of those partying, happy-go-lucky person, now married, ha get pregnant. I think you get into the pregnancy without much nutrients yes. to begin with. And then the pregnancy just depletes you and there's a lot of inflammation, particularly of the thyroid. And I find it's like a subclinical hypothyroidism that they live with till they hit the next big insult, which is perimenopause. And now they're ready to, oh, my God, I feel absolutely miserable. I need some help. Mm. That, that's what I find. And I agree with you. And when they have three and four kids, you know, they're toast by the time they. And they I finish. suppose from the culture you've come from, it was an extended family. Yes. So you had that, you know, the woman yep. had that help. We're in a nuclear situation where the woman is basically on her own maybe the partners at work, but she's either staying at home or she's gone back to work and shouldering everything, the shopping, the working, the children, without any backup from other generations, which culturally many traditional cultures would have that support that we don't have in, in our Western society. Yeah, absolutely. So the price of uh, privacy, right? And yeah. uh, personal yeah. space. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, after pregnancy, of course, then we get into the perimenopausal, which is another huge disruption. Oh. This is where I think the majority of the um, stresses, it's almost like the breaking point. Yeah. Kids have gone. Your career is coming to an end. And now it's like you can feel the aches in your bone. Your doctor just told you you have osteoporosis. Your periods are erratic. You get more headaches. You feel like you're depressed. You're not sleeping anymore. You have anxiety. What does a woman do at this point? What, what can she do to actually not get there? But if she's there, how can she get out of that rut sooner yeah, than later? We're going to go through a transition, which men don't. We're going through this tran another transition that's going to take us to the point where we've now got 30 to 50 years to live past the menopause. 
and it's for women to understand that if we can help them go through this transition smoothly and comfortably that they've got this another third of their lives to live that well and it just depends how motivated they are to make those changes and I think that's really important if they can understand that this is a transition and that they're going to move through it and out the other side but how they come out the other side depends on what they do ahead of time but it would be it's a real shame for them not to get the benefit of these years past the menopause and to feel that with a lot of quality of life as well as quality because we talk about lifespan but for me it's health span that's what's really so important the quality's got to be there as well as that quantity of years as well we're coming to the era of medicine where aging is not inevitable i used to say yeah. disease is not inevitable but now aging is not inevitable there are so many things of course diet exercise putting in all that effort if everybody did it 100% of the folks did it we, you and i would be out of jobs right people don't do it they're looking for little short easy routes because we're all not made the same so what would you say is the one thing that most successful women do to regain their health i think it is really thinking about this as a life stage and to get to that point to say okay i've got to make some changes now if they haven't made them already and think of it as a complete life change in terms of the exercise the food the stress levels if almost having an mot i think you have mot's in the states as well they basically a check up with somebody like you or i that actually then says this is where you are this is where you need to move to and these are the changes you need to make to protect yourself against osteoporosis alzheimer's cardiovascular disease the things that could come these degenerative illnesses that could come over time but are preventable and it's whether they're happy to take that step because it's something that's very strong for them and they want to make those changes to feel well in themselves yeah and i think the other big uh, hurdle that most women have is this access to information right when i first started practice i was the only source of information for them right there wasn't like uh, i'm going to call my doctor and whatever she says i'm going to do now they come to me with a this laundry list of things like this is these are the things i saw on the internet do you think i have this do you think i have that mm -hmm. and so they get confused yeah. um as much as they're very well informed how how does um how do you sort that out for them because i i can start working with someone and they're doing a little more research and they want to know i should be taking the supplement should i be doing this should i and i can see that they're punching holes into their journey without actually perfecting what things that i've already asked them to yeah. change yeah. so in this I, and I, you can blame them we're all like that rabbit that's getting attracted to the next blame how how do you help people see through that and keep them on track what do you tell them that helps them through that yes and it, you're right because we've got so much information and they can look things up it has changed over time and it's really trying to say that actually that i know that if you follow this path that I know I've seen women in the same situation of yourself and these are the changes that you can experience. I would like you to follow this over the next few months and just, you know, trust that knowledge and then we can add on things after if you like to or if you need to, but to think about following something with a focus for a set period of time and then see how you're feeling the changes that you've experienced and then we can fine tune things as we go along if need be but i think it's all about how do we help them to focus for a certain period of time and follow that one track that you and i know how different it can make them feel and their health and everything because we've seen it in other women and it's just i think them understanding that and almost trusting our information our experience to follow that over a period of time before we start adding in or ending up with a lot of confusion it's it would cost them a lot of money it's costing them confusion it just doesn't help them 
by all the snippets they may be reading and could this be helpful could that be helpful it's just trying to keep them on track for a, a set period of time really <laughs> yep yeah i actually tell them just for 90 days this is the yeah. request i have don't look at anything just listen to me and then i'll walk you through that after that we'll go over everything else on your wish list so let's say somebody is um they're sick and tired of being sick and tired i hear that so often it's it's mm. not even funny it's like why why do you get to that point but someone is really interested in making the transformation but it's scary you know change is scary for everybody and i almost feel like changing your lifestyle is asking somebody to change their religion um, yeah. They have to believe in it. They yeah. have to be, believe that it is going to uh, really be good for them. And this is a change that they actually need. Somewhere, they have to start somewhere. Is there a specific book that you recommend? I know you're an author of 13 books. Right. And I, I'm fine with you giving one of your books. Also tell me if there's any other book that you felt was absolutely outstanding in helping a patient understand what they need to do. Well, I would say the one that I've written that encompasses every woman's problem would be one called Natural Health Bible for Women. And I wrote that to cover every life stage, every problem we can encounter, but it also includes a massage and aromatherapy as well as all the nutritional and the medical tests that they should be doing as well. All my other books are more focused on a stage like fertility, polycystic ovary syndrome, menopause, dementia, but it's the Natural Health Bible for Women, which is really covering every health stage. And when you think of all the other things we can suffer from, like cystitis, ovarian cysts, we've got a lot of things that we suffer from as women, and that was the aim to write something that would be almost a reference book for every woman to be able to dip in and out as she needed it so that was the purpose of writing and it's also illustrated so it was done beautifully by the publishers i have to say it's an exquisite way they put it all together with all the photographs that's nice yeah i will i'll put that in the show notes and a link Thank to you. that book um is there any other book that you recommend that uh women read i think a lot of um their journey begins with their mindset yes I can't, and since you have psychology as your background, yeah. I'm sure you're the first person. I mean, you, you I should. Can't, you can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head at the moment, but there would have been some over the years, and even some of the older ones. Yeah, I think I think the one that really hit me, but it's a long time gone now, and I don't even know if it's still in print. But it was um, Yudkin's book, Sweet, White, and Deadly, and that was his sugar book that really for me set me off thinking about this food group that we were all eating and you know in vast quantities and it was he he got a lot of um antagonism about that book from his own peer group and everything but to come out with something like that which now is widely recognized was i think it must have been in the 60s or 70s but yes something very brave to do something like that at that time sweet white and deadly that sounds yeah. really cool yeah um and yeah <laughs> uh and the other part that i wanted to ask you is so this is another i'm sure you see it too um because you do webinars like i do i yeah. see people who show up on my webinars they've been following me for four or five years they've been educating themselves but they never take the first step and yeah whenever there's a group question they talk about how sick they are and how no one can help them what is that big barrier that they seem to be facing? Yeah, so the question is then, are they willing to make a change? And also they've got to let go of something as well. So like we talked about habits and things like that, and, you know, the beliefs that people have, in some way they're moving towards something else, but they've got to let go of something that they may have believed over time, and that's got to be released as well in order for them to move forward but also part of it psychologically is whether they want to stay in that situation in terms of the victim side of it it's whether that illness is is who they are and the symptoms and the sympathy and the support i don't mean it unkindly but i have seen that that the sympathy in the family 
and and maybe in some way it suits them to stay where they are rather than to move out of it they're being looked after they don't have to go shopping because somebody's bringing it for them they're cooking for them so it just depends on what's going on in that family dynamics as well as to whether they can take that step can they let go can they move forward and is it something that they don't have to stay as that victim and put up with those symptoms that they've had for years it's a it's a bit of a a shift that they're going to have to make physically and mentally to do that i see that they are not aware of it they truly believe that they are sick but a lot of times in fact i tell patients ask me if i work with you would I, can you ensure that i will get better and it's like if i say you will get better you should run from whatever i am doing obviously that's not how it works there's a small percentage i would say 2 to 3% even if i know what to do for them i know i can't help them because i see that pattern yeah where their disease becomes their identity yeah and um they and they don't realize that that defined that has defined their journey of life i've had rheumatoid arthritis all my life and i've gotten crippled over yeah. the years and no one can do anything about it look at my joints right that's uh, it's it's and a very unfortunate even medically they might have been told that actually well you're depressed and you're going to be like this for the rest of their life and they so true they've taken that as a truth that that is what's going to happen no matter what anybody else has said because the doctor has said that that that's the way they're going to be and we know we can't shift that unless they're happy to shift it and you know that is probably the most powerful thing that i've ever seen and if there are any physicians listening to this i really want that to sink in our words are so powerful to a human being who truly believes the doctor knows everything yeah and um and and when we tell a patient i i've said this because i was taught this once you're a diabetic you're always a diabetic you can never you have to be on metformin for the rest of your life it doesn't matter what happens it's going to come back and i've also been told statements like you can postpone disease but you cannot prevent it and all of that is untrue mm. and we know that as we work in the wellness yes you may be at a risk for yeah. certain diseases but you have a whole bunch of things that you can change in order not to actually have that risk manifest itself mm -hmm. so that's very important and before we i you know come to the close of this i want to talk about another very growing problem which i haven't seen um as much coming from where i did i mean it's been over 23 sorry 26 years since i've left india but osteoporosis i'm seeing it in younger and younger women and not even necessarily the menopausal like i've had a patient who's had their bone density go down by 50% with menopause so that was a really um like you say estrogen but we say estrogen dependent yeah. bone density um in general i'm seeing younger and younger women having a decrease in like osteopenia be beginning because that's a huge structural change yes that's happening and i've seen you talk about it what what is your take on that why is that happening i think it's a couple of things i think vitamin d is crucial and that obviously is so important in terms of absorption of calcium we've got rickets back in the uk that we thought we'd got rid of 40 years ago no way Yes because of the message to stay out the sun we have oh, got right. said you know we go from one extreme to another we have to get this balance and homeostasis so it the message has been and i understand it in terms of skin cancer but we've gone so far the other way that we've got a raging vitamin d deficiency in the uk so that's going to have this huge impact on bone density and for course for us as women we reach our peak bone mass around the age of 25 to 30 so we're trying to get on as much as possible and like we talked about women who've lost their cycle because they've gone down the clean eating route they're not going to have the female hormones and the other one that's striking from the research are all the colas and the fizzy drinks because they contain phosphoric acid as a 
gives it its tangy taste and is actually increasing the risk of fractures even in girls as young as 8 to 16 years old because of how much of these colas are being drunk and then it means then that women are not those young girls are not even reaching their peak bone density at the time that they're supposed to so they're already lower before they even hit the menopause and of course for us and not a lot of girls are walking to school the physical activity has gone down because everybody's in front of a computer so there's a whole generation shift around physical activity smoking for young girls alcohol going in the cola and the processed foods going up lack of vitamin d it's almost like could be an uh, an osteoporosis epidemic in mm. a few years time because it's all of these things hitting together is having this huge impact on women's bone health and the risk of fractures they think it's now one in two women will get osteoporosis past the age of 50 wow. not not, not and, mine but will yeah so in, in, i've also noticed the other extreme where where they have physical activity but they're doing too much of it they're running like nine ten miles a day and I just find that elution of that calcium off the bone to neutralize all the lactic acid that they're producing with muscle activity also yeah. contributes. So you can go too much on either um, yeah. extremes to find, again, a medium, a moderation in all and, of this. And, and that amount of exercise, they'll lose that body fat percentage, so the menstrual cycle will stop. Yeah. So yeah. then they've lost that estrogen benefit. So it is that... How do we go down the middle line of this balance that we're all, always after for any health condition? It's how do we get that moderation and for them somebody to stay within that middle instead of going one extreme or the other? Absolutely. So um, as we wrap up, is there something that you wish I had asked you but I did not? No, I don't think so, actually. It's been really comprehensive and wonderful to see the alignment of our viewpoints you know in terms of looking after the women that we see the same sort of problems coming up and then how do we motivate these women to make these changes because it's very different if we were say an, an osteopath or a chiropractor we're doing something to people yeah. we are sitting across a desk or remotely if we're on zoom giving advice and it's how does that click for somebody and the words we use that they then go away and say i can do this and i can see that you've seen the same experiences that i have over the time i've been in this field as well and it's how do we motivate them to make that change because it's just words that we're giving them and those words like you said could be powerful either way and negatively in this unfortunately the medical world of a self-fulfilling prophecy where you've got this condition and you've got to live with it for the rest of your life and yeah. and how can we say well actually no you don't and you know we can help you and that is so powerful and i think for me the one that's made the difference over time is for women who have been told well you're never going to get pregnant or they've had miscarriages and 10 years down the line right enable them to help to create a new life you know yeah. that is something really powerful because you're either pregnant or you're not you can't be a little bit pregnant like we, we you know with such a definite result and that for me has been i suppose so fulfilling over the time to make that help that woman and that couple had this new life and that change for them as a, a family unit yeah yeah i think that's another huge problem that's coming up where fertility issues are um i don't know what the incidence is now is it like one in how many women but yeah it's it's increasing you're seeing maybe because they're planning their pregnancy later on in life and they've been on oral contraceptive pills for decades before they make that um decision um so the, the, there are a lot of women issues that are evolving but i uh, the way i tell women to look at it is you got to be a little selfish to be selfless 
because if you take good care of yourself, you will not be a burden to your family as you get older. Because the fact of the matter is most of us are going to be living into our 90s, if not into our hundreds. And how much of, because I see that with a lot of my uh, patients who are in their 50s and 60s, their parents are in the 80s, 90s in nursing homes. You're almost tethered to that city, constantly worrying about, especially with COVID, where you couldn't even go and visit them yeah. because they are so frail and cannot take care of themselves. They have no memory. They can't walk. They fall. They go to the hospital. There's so much. It's almost like you're taking payback for all those years of work that you put into their lives and your kids' lives, that you're taking everything back with interest. So I think begin by taking care of yourself mm. so that you are not a burden, but actually an asset, just like what we see in the blue zone areas where the, or the Mediterranean or Rosetta, all of those studies show that people who had purpose in life into their later years and were the center of the family, um, a part of the decision-making where the family still um, had that connection, those were the folks who actually had a very robust and fruitful life right till the end, uh, rather than spending two decades of their life in nursing homes. Yeah. So, And I also say to them that actually you've got to look after yourself in order to be able to look after all the people that you're looking after because yeah. they're, they're juggling so many balls and if they yeah. collapse everything collapses down and it is thinking and I thought that terminology you know to be selfish to be selfless yes. that is really you know quite a good phrase and it is about how to help them to understand that if they don't look after themselves they can't look after their children and their elderly and everybody else that they're taking care of they can't yep. Absolutely. I totally agree. I could sit down and talk with you for another couple of hours, but I don't think people will be able to listen to us. So I think overall, it's really make that decision to take care of yourself, be a little selfish so you can be selfless. And, you know, begin by addressing all those fluctuations of blood sugars. I think that's where it all begins. And yeah. that's what we're sold to. I mean, when you even if you buy a pre-made food um if you look at the ingredient one of the first ingredients is sugar and water yeah so right and we've got to get people to read the labels i think <laughs> absolutely i think that that can be a whole podcast by itself well thank you so much i really enjoyed talking to you and i'm looking forward to it. I, I probably will buy a couple of your books and start reading them because i think women need a, a, a solid science-based approach to their health rather than being just sold supplements and um, or diets, fat diets that uh, work temporarily, but then they're back on that uh, roller coaster ride of chronic disease and uh, yeah. it is completely, it can be completely prevented or even avoided. Yeah. But anybody's welcome to get in touch. They can contact me on marilynglendo.com if they want yes. to. Yeah. Anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful website, lots of information. So I'll post that link also below the show notes. And um, once again, thank you so much, Marilyn. Oh, really lovely this. to talk to you. And anytime, it's been a, a delight. So I'm um, wonderful that we've got this work on different places in the universe and to, for us to support women through all those stages in their life cycle. So thank you so much. Thank you.